I'd like us to consider the book of Acts. We've been, it's Easter, and in Easter season, we read through the book of Acts. What is wonderful about Acts as Luke part two, as I remember calling it in seminary, is that it continues the story of what happens when Jesus, who has lived his ministry, had his three years of active ministry, had the terrible week when he is praised, then forgotten, then murdered, crucified as a common criminal, and risen again in glorious ascension, and then the people that who followed him and were moved by him are left behind and kind of wondering, now what do we do? And what's wonderful about it is, is that this is the start of the church. This is the story of the first decade, decade plus, two decades, of what happened in the church, of Peter, of James, of the, of the martyrdom of Stephen, of Paul's journeys, the journeys that become the epistles that we read in the New Testament section of our, of our lectionary. It's so basic that for those of us who are involved in the emerging church movement of the early, late 90s, early 1000s, the late Clinton, early Bush periods, that this is what we turn to when we were trying to think of how to remake, how to restart the church, the church that for us had seemed to have grown stale and old. How do we do this? Well, let's go back to some source material. So, we are in the book of Acts. We've been reading and following this journey for the past three, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, as we come to our conclusion at Pentecost. We're following this journey. And where we are, to put us in context of the story we, heard, we hear today, is that a chapter before, two chapters before actually, is the Great Council of Jerusalem. A little bit of refresher of what happened in the Council of Jerusalem, that Paul, when he's known as Saul, was a persecutor of Christians, had his revelation, had, spoken, had seen Jesus, and become Paul, the great evangelizer of the Christian movement, of the Gentiles in Asia Minor. So he had gone off into his journeys and started some churches and had come back to Jerusalem to plead his case that the Gentiles be joined with the Jews as being fully, fully Christians. And Peter, who had his own conversion experience, remember that he had gone to the home of Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, a major in the Roman army, but not only that, but also an officer in the Roman, in the Roman organization that was running Palestine. And he had his conversion experience too. So they pled their case that being a follower of Christ not be limited just to those who are truly born into the Jewish faith and practice the Jewish, the Jewish faith and follow the Mosaic laws, but also those who wanted to be part of the Jesus movement. And they were successful in this. They had pled their case. They said that all who come to Christ should be welcome as, as fellow Christians. And in the Council of Jerusalem, James, Bishop of Jerusalem, said, well, okay. What a wonderful opening statement that all who are called to follow Christ can all be Christians, that there's no barrier that keeps us apart, that we are all together. So, Paul goes off on his journey. He wants to go back to the churches in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, modern Syria, to tell this great news that, guess what? I pled our case, and we're all part of the great church. But as he keeps going from village to village with his fellow buddies, with Silas and Timothy, 
there's something happening, and he's hearing the call of the Holy Spirit that keeps bringing him, not sort of on this sideways journey, but sort of moving in a direct, more or less direct line northwest to the part where Turkey comes very close to Europe. And this is where he has his dream that we read about. The dream where a Macedonian comes to him in vision. I'm not quite sure how he knew as a Macedonian, perhaps he was wearing the blue and white football scarf of their team. But he has that vision that says, come to Europe, come to Macedonia, we need you. And instead of ignoring this in a dream, because some of us, we have our dreams, and we just as soon roll over and continue onto something more pleasant, like eating lots of pie. But instead, he follows this dream, and they end up entering Macedonia. Macedonia was the kingdom that gave forth Alexander the Great. Macedonia was that Alexander the Great had conquered and brought Greek culture into the vast Middle East, the Greek culture that Paul knew as a tent maker, as a trader, as a Jew who was raised in a Hellenic culture. It was a culture that he was familiar with, this intersection of the Jewish and the Greek. But where the dream and the call led him was instead to a town called Philippi, which was a Roman colony. Philippi was the location of the battle between Mark Antony against Cassius and Brutus. So Mark Antony, Octavian, fought Cassius and Brutus, who were the people who murdered Julius Caesar. And as a reward to their legionnaires who won that battle, they gave them Philippi as a settlement. So in the middle of this Macedonian, neo-Hellenistic, this Greek area, there is a Roman colony. A Roman colony. This is new country and a new culture and a new people for Paul. After all, he grew up as a Jew in a Hellenic colony, and now he's come to a completely new people. And there he is, called to Europe, bringing the gospel to Europe, bringing the gospel into the heart of Rome, one might say. And who do they look for? They are in town, and they look for the nearest thing they could find to the comforts of home. They find a Jewish community. But they notice that this Jewish community is meeting outside the gates. They meet on the side of the river. They are not large enough to even have a, to have a synagogue, not a house church, not a place to worship. They worship outside in the river, next to the river. And Paul sits and takes a position of the rabbi, the teacher of the synagogue, out in the air. And, it's a, and it, as, the, as the passage says in Acts, He's speaking to the women who are gathered there. In a Jewish community, it would be the men who would be leading worship. It would be the men who would be welcoming. It would be the men who would be running things. The fact that they're stating that he spoke to the women there showed that this was a community either without men or with very few men, and women were in leadership. This is an upside-down world. In a world where women usually did not have a speaking voice, usually were outside of, organi- of, the organi- of the organizing of their faith, they were the center of it. And in the center of it was Lydia. And Lydia was a dye maker. This was a very profitable business in that time. When you think about it, kind of off-white, 
to bright white, what color are sheep, kind of whitish, kind of gray, maybe a black sheep in the crowd. What color is cotton when it's grown? It's kind of off-white. That's a lot of beige in the world. And a dye maker who can make colors and turn all that beige, whitish, off-white, acru colors into the beautiful landscape, the rainbow of colors that God has given us, that's not a bad position to have. It's a good, lot, it's a good market to be in. And even more so, she was a dyer of purple. Purple was the color of the imperial family. Purple was a color reserved for the senatorial class of the Ro- of, in the Roman hierarchy. Purple was a color reserved the, the equestrian class, the nobility of Rome. You had to have a special license to dye purple. You had a lock on that market. For those who follow the English royals and are so enthralled by things knowing that they're by warrant to his, his royal highness, the Prince of Wales, by warrant to her majesty, the queen... This is not a bad position to have. Lydia had that essentially a royal warrant to make purple. And you can only wear purple if you're a member of those three classes. And woe be told, befall you if you tried to, wear, tried to wear purple and you were not. In Roman colony, comedy, as I remember from my, what little I remember of my classical studies, one of the objects of comedy is to, sit at a, is to lie at a table and notice that the host has a napkin with the broadest purple stripe around it. That was his pretension to trying to be being one of the equestrial class, one of the noble class, even though he couldn't wear a purple tunic, but he was able to carry a purple napkin. So she was a dyer of purple. She was an important voice in this community. She was a person to be, to be seen. She was the leader of the small community, and she turns to Paul and wishes to know more about Jesus. And Paul converts her. He converts her. He baptizes her family, her household. This could be anywhere from 10 to 20, 30 people. Her immediate family, all of her slaves, for a person of that prominence, probably had quite a lot of people working for her. And he baptized her. The church is growing beyond. The outsiders are being welcomed in. It is a marvelous and beautiful thing that the outsiders are welcomed in, that all of us, and in this small example, all of us are welcomed to the table to be in present and learn from the gospel of Jesus. And I bring this out because our presiding bishop has called upon us in, these, in this nine-year term that he has to be following Jesus, to be part of a new Jesus movement, to be evangelists and to be healers and healers of racial reconciliation, to bring reconciliation to the world and to go out in the community traveling lightly, following Jesus. It's sort of a new direction for us as a church, that we're actually called into evangelism, that we're actually called into our presence as a living witness of doing the work of the gospel here on earth. And we want to do this, but, and it may seem new, but actually we've been doing this for years. Under Bishop Mark, we've been doing this as part of the beloved community. The beloved community, which is who we are, was an idea from a philosopher named Josiah Royce, who was at the turn of the century, the other century, 1890s into about 1910. And Professor Royce 
who was raised in Grass Valley, attended the University of California, the University of California, the one in Berkeley. I'm a little partisan, sorry. And was um, taught at Harvard College, had this idea of how communities form. Traditionally, communities have formed because we've been gathered together for some basic reason. We're a family unit, so we gather together. We live in a village, so we gather together. We live in a village because we need to su the support. We need all these bodies to grow food, tend the animals. We gather together because we want to defend ourselves from the village across the river. We want to defend ourselves from the roving saber-toothed tigers and the mastodons and so on. We gather for defense. But Royce, who was an atheist, saw this as actually communities that gather together in love, agape, that have nothing in common except for our common love for one another. We've been doing this as, a, as Christians for decades, for years, for centuries, for millennia. But he put that word together, that we are gathered as a beloved community. This is what draws us together. And the beloved community here in Ross, the beloved community in Half Moon Bay, the beloved community in San Rafael, we are all connected as a diocese. And we're all connected as members of the Episcopal Church. And we're connected together as an Anglican communion. I was blessed to attend the, I thought it was 150th, 125th anniversary of the Anglican Church of Korea. They invited us in the Episcopal Church to come and celebrate with them because we share this love in the beloved community. It is a radical concept, and if you wonder how radical concept that is, go to Korea, where they live day to day with their brothers and sisters on the other side of the DMZ, and what the Korean church there wants to do is to be the reconcilers of the two sides, north and south. This is God's beloved community, and we can do that here. What's wonderful about this concept of the beloved community is that it's not restricted to us. We can reach out to everyone, and even more so, this is what Jesus has been teaching us. When we look back in the book of Acts and we see what happened at the Council of Jerusalem, it was the first start of that. When Peter said, I've been amongst the Gentiles, and they are, they are one of us, when Paul comes back and said, I preached amongst the Gentiles, they are one of us, to the Jewish leaders of that founding, of that founding Christian community, they have talked about the beloved community and what a joy and blessing that is, that we are connected somehow, and that connection continues and continues and continues. So we are a diocese united in this love. We are a church united in this love. And when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about following Christ, this is what we're talking about that we can be reconcilers and we can heal by reaching out across the lines that divide us because everything that divides us is there, but aren't we so much better to be together? We are so much better when we are together. So what have we learned? What do I give as a charge? What do we hear? Our presiding bishop has called us into being part of the Jesus movement. Our presiding bishop has called us to be evangelists, to be change makers, to be like Paul traveling lightly into a new world. And we can be change makers. I was reminded that we can start again. I've, when I served at Ash Wednesday, I made foolishly, publicly, my vow, my Lenten vow, 
Some people give up wine or whiskey or sweets. Some add more prayer or meditation. And um, I said I would stop being a jerk driving. Now, my commute is up 101 going, south, going north to south into San Francisco, which makes it something of a challenge. So I went through the 7.30 service, and I made it back for the 12. And then for the 7.30 p.m. service, there I was trying to park my car, running a little bit late. And, gee, someone took that parking spot I had done a full 360 around the block to try to get. And I'm muttering my little oaths that are probably best heard on the water as a boat tips over and pull in somewhere else and walk in the rain and get to church. And the person who took my spot was a member of my congregation. But God is good all the time, and God is, all the time God is good, and I knew I could start again. Because what was most important was not that I made that mistake, but that I stayed in relationship with the person who stole, stole my space. <laughs> that is the beloved community. So I ask us all to consider being part of the beloved community, to consider being part of this new Jesus movement, to be able to go out and buy a cup of coffee for the stranger when we're waiting in line. I, to, well, I guess because of Fast Track, we can't pass it forward by paying a toll before, but I remember that when I had to pay cash for tolls, that sometimes just paying the toll for the person behind, it was only five bucks but it was a little bit of love being passed forward, that we say hello to the stranger, that we greet someone new, and if all those things are still daunting, pray, 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 because prayer is real. Prayer is God's love. Prayer is that which we can do wherever we are. And pray that we continue to be change makers. Pray that we can be the beloved community. Pray that we can be evangelists, and pray that God's grace and love be with us all. And to that, I ask that we all say, Amen.